Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up. Sad, confused, deluded. Marina Hyde asks us to spare a thought for the friends of Boris Johnson at this difficult time. Science writer David Robson reveals why delayed gratification may not be worth waiting for. And former England footballer turned BBC pundit, Alex Scott, on Love, Lineker and the Women's World Cup. Now, things may look dark for Boris Johnson right now, but his acolytes are determined to go down fighting. And true to type, he is determined to let them. By Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Can I just check something before we begin? Because it feels as though we're dealing with a weight of irony that defies all known physics. Is Boris Johnson leaving British politics absolutely howling with anger because someone supposedly told him a lie? Is Boris Johnson wetting his pants thrice daily over the injustice of him being supposedly misled? Is Boris Johnson now appalled at someone else's supposedly casual relationship with the truth? It seems, incredibly, that he is. In which case, I honestly don't think I could take this story more seriously. It's too perfect. Boris Johnson has been Boris Johnsoned. To the event horizon of irony then, and the ongoing row over whether Rishi Sunak did or didn't tell Johnson he could bend the rules to get peerages for a set of political inadequates completely devoid of ministerial achievements, and notable only for their slavish loyalty to a guy who would have betrayed them in a heartbeat if he thought there was some minuscule, fleeting advantage for himself at that moment. I note there is also some hokey-cokey about why Johnson, age 58, couldn't get a knighthood for his daddy. Genuinely, one of the worst people in the country. But let's face it, that one can't even be dignified with discussion. As for who to believe... Sunak, or the leading liar of the age, I think we'll probably have to give the current Prime Minister the benefit of the doubt on this one. But arguably, the most unbelievable thing of all is the Johnson allies who are still out there spouting off on how appallingly he's been treated. Behold, an absolute cavalcade of beaters who spent the nicest weekend of the year so far crying anonymous quotes down the phone about a guy who'd cheerily have sex with their wives while they were out of town, doing some boring little job for him that he couldn't be asked doing for himself. And after reading some of their output over the past week, 
I strongly suspect their only reaction to this would be to apologise for not having changed the bedsheets for him before they set off. Imagine being a single-issue politician when that issue is defending Boris Johnson. Over the past week, these cuck Norrises have served up some of the most eyebrow-raising quotes in recent memory, apparently under the impression that they are helping. Here we go with the first one from a Johnson ally who's got an intriguing read on Sunak. He thinks he's being very clever when he's being very stupid, this ran. He's like a shit batsman who completely misreads the delivery. Yeah, but is he? Is he really? Yet the anonymous quotes continue, from people who simply refuse to accept that Big Dog soiled the rug. How'd you like this one in the Sunday Times, from one of Johnson's close friends? He is making lots of money. He needs money. He likes money. I think he'll use the money to try to buy back all the people he lost in his life. Amazing. As indicated, that quote, which would count as a full-scale character assassination on most people, is from one of Johnson's close friends. Or maybe you prefer this on-the-record effort from Tory MP and former party chair Jake Berry. You voted for Brexit, the establishment blocked it. Berry fumed last Saturday. You voted for Boris Johnson, the establishment forced him out. Who is in charge here? The voters or the blob? Thank you, Sir Jake. Knighted last year by Johnson, obviously. On the very day the Covid inquiry begins, meanwhile, there is something grotesque at the spectacle of former health minister Nadine Doris wailing about being heartbroken not to get a peerage for her loyalty to Johnson. Having said that, my unpopular opinion is that Doris's tale is more complex than many of her detractors allow. She was born into terrible poverty, and truly horrendous things happened to her as a child. Yet, she served as a nurse and built her own business. She became a best-selling author. I have read one of her books, and the compassion for her characters shines through, but I was struck by the fact that this compassion was not discernibly part of her political persona, which had become quite the opposite, aggressive and confrontational, and increasingly so, in the sole cause of defending Boris Johnson. Had she been able to marry it with her political career, I have often thought Doris could have made light work of huge numbers of privileged professional politicians who she might have dismissed with a blithe, I've dealt with 10,000 bedpans, what have you done? But she wasn't. By the end, she was known simply as Johnson's attack dog, now denied even her bone as a reward. It will be a hard sell for anyone to see what happened to Doris as a political tragedy, though in a way it was, just as it was for all those Johnson limited and dragged down to his level in the service of... what? What did he ever believe in apart from himself? There is not a single member of his family or supposed friendship group who would even dream of claiming he got into politics for public service. Contrary to one of his favourite riffs, Johnson wasn't the mayor in Jaws. He was the shark. An obvious monster, a proven menace, and ultimately a creature who needs a big mouthful of explosives. That process currently appears to be underway. There will be a sequel, of course, just as there were several unfortunate sequels to Jaws. The shark will continue its hyper-lucrative speech tour. The shark will do a best-selling memoir. The shark will become a much-laughed-at tourist site at a second-tier theme park. Hey, it's a living. But for the greatest narcissist of the deep, who only made sense to himself in that one job... It is not a life. He won't disappear from view, but Johnson is now firmly condemned to the realm of diminishing returns. 
largely yet to meet their own reckoning, are that whole chunk of Tory MPs who sacrificed their judgment in the cause of promoting and enabling him, in the face of more than enough available evidence. We knew we'd all have to live in the chaos that had always attended Johnson. But as it turned out, a great many people had to die in it. That was Sad, Confused, Deluded. Spare a thought for the friends of Boris Johnson at this difficult time. By Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next, good news for pleasure seekers. The latest research shows delayed gratification is not always a guarantee of well-being. According to writer David Robson, the evidence shows that a little bit of strategic indulgence might actually come with a few perks. Read by Dermot Daly. We may live in a largely secular society, but the Protestant work ethic is still alive and strong. The lazy and entitled millennials, we have been told, are work-shy and self-indulgent. They spend too much and save too little. Behaviour that is not only harming their future prospects, but those of the world economy. We should have the grit of our elders, apparently, who weren't scared to suffer some hardship with the promise of a better life ahead. Except they too are coming under criticism for enjoying the life that they struggle to earn. According to the UK Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, it is time for the over-50s to put away their golf clubs and start contributing to the economy again. The gospel of self-restraint clearly runs very deep in the cultural psyche, and, until recently, Psychological research had seemed to confirm that delayed gratification was indeed the secret to long-term success. Yet, some recent research has come to question these ideas. While moderate levels of willpower are almost certainly beneficial, people who attempt to avoid all kinds of indulgences are neither happier nor healthier. They are not even more successful at achieving their goals. By embracing rather than shunning our short-term desires and knowing when and how to indulge them, we may enjoy greater well-being with no cost to our productivity. The long and the short of it. By definition, delayed gratification is the idea that putting off temporary pleasure in the moment will lead to greater contentment once we have met our longer-term targets. The research may be best represented by the famous marshmallow test, in which children were asked to resist eating one marshmallow immediately with the promise of enjoying two marshmallows a quarter of an hour later. Years later, those who had succeeded in the marshmallow test got better grades at school and progressed more quickly in their careers. The finding proved to be so influential that it inspired education programmes devoted to building character. The idea even infiltrated Sesame Street, as the Cookie Monster learned to deal with his cravings, and taught viewers to do the same. Me want, but me wait, he sang in the accompanying electropop pastiche. But does delayed gratification always lead to better well-being? Signs that this might not be the case were already apparent in the 1990s. Analysing the state of the evidence, Professor David Funder at the University of California, Riverside, found that children who scored well on self-control also grew up to be overly reserved and lacked curiosity. He also pointed to research showing that women with very high levels of self-control tend to be at greater risk of depression, for instance. The correlates of delay of gratification are definitely a mixed bag, he concluded. Later research suggested that people with the highest levels of self-control may suffer from feelings of regret. They can struggle to appreciate the present moment, and when looking back over their lives, they come to resent the sacrifices they have made. To investigate this possibility, Professor Ran Kiewitz of Columbia University and his doctoral student, Arnat Keenan, asked university alumni to reflect on their winter breaks from 40 years previously. The researchers found that the ageing graduates were much more likely to lament having had too much self-control than too little at this key moment in their youth. 
their regret over the pleasures that they had missed from being too sensible, such as turning down the chance to travel, was much greater than any guilt over their moments of indulgence, the times they had skipped their studies, spent too much, and acted irresponsibly. Interestingly, the researchers found exactly the opposite views among current undergraduates. These students were much more likely to endorse the standard view that self-control was preferable to indulgence. It was only with the perspective of a lifetime that the alumni could recognise how much richer their life might have been if they had practised a little less self-denial. People with low self-control are often said to have a kind of psychological myopia, but Kiewitz and Keenan propose that many suffer the opposite problem, a psychological long-sightedness that leaves them so deeply focused on their future goals they cannot enjoy all the delicious distractions of the present moment. Strategic Indulgence Besides ignoring these long-term regrets, historical psychological research might have overstated the short-term consequences of momentary indulgences. According to one prominent theory, any lapse would only encourage more slip-ups, as we find ourselves falling for further temptations. If you are on a diet, for instance, one slice of cake may soon lead to another, until all your good intentions are in tatters. Similarly, once you start watching videos on YouTube, you may find that the whole morning has passed by without you getting any work done. For this reason, indulgences were seen as failures that should be avoided. This idea also has religious origins. This abstinence idea has its roots in Christianity, says Professor Leela Jar at the National University of Singapore. Yet recent research shows that intermittently giving in to our desires can often be better for our well-being without putting us on a slippery slope to failure. The trick, it seems, is to plan the indulgences in advance. Consider a study of dieters, aptly titled The Benefits of Behaving Badly on Occasion, conducted by Professor Rita Coelho de Valais at the Catolica Lisbon School of Business and Economics in Portugal and colleagues at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. All the participants wished to lose weight and aimed to consume an average of 1,500 calories a day. For those in the control condition, there was no opportunity for variation. Those in the behaving badly condition, however, were asked to eat just 1,300 calories on six days of the week. They could then enjoy a blowout of 2,700 calories on the 7th. Over the first two weeks, the researchers tracked the participants' feelings of motivation and their general mood. They then followed up again one month later to find out how much progress they had made. As you might expect of people on calorie-restricted diets, the participants in both conditions lost a few kilos. On average, their body mass index dropped from about 25, which is considered overweight, to about 24, which is just within the normal category. There were, however, significant differences in their experiences of the diet. The people who had planned those days of indulgence reported more positive feelings and remained more motivated throughout. The participants who simply cut their calories without the treat days, in contrast, seemed to find it much harder work to maintain their self-control and stick to the diet. That could be crucial for a dieter's long-term success. Jar has noted similar phenomena in his research comparing the habits of students with high and low grade point averages, GPAs, at US universities. He was interested in the ways that they responded to big-time collegiate sports games, American football, basketball and baseball. These are an important part of student life in the US, but also a huge distraction from their studies. If successful self-control simply involves avoiding short-term pleasures in the pursuit of long-term goals, then you would expect the high GPA students to have shunned the matches in the run-up to their exams. To find out if this was the case, Jar and a colleague at Indiana University Bloomington asked 409 students to take an online questionnaire a week before a home basketball game against a long-standing rival team. They reported their general attitudes to basketball, 
and then gave an hour-by-hour plan for their studies on the day before the game, the day itself, and the day afterwards. Overall, the low and high GPA students hoped to devote roughly the same amount of time to studying over those three days. The big difference lay in the way they distributed those studies. The more successful students planned to take much more time off on the day of the game, but compensated for that with a few extra hours on the days either side of the match. The low GPA students, in contrast, planned to skip the game entirely. Crucially, a follow-up study confirmed that the more academically successful students were much more likely to have actively participated in watching the collegiate games and celebrating afterwards, and this brought significant pleasure. They were enjoying the activities more, says Jar. That would have put them in a better psychological state to continue their studies the next day. Jar's latest research suggests that the advantages of strategic indulgence may come from an increased sense of autonomy, a finding that may be useful for anyone hoping to avoid procrastination at work. Avoiding guilt There are many ways that we could incorporate this new view of self-control by including a few strategic indulgences into our own lives. We can set up pleasant diversions in a long working day or schedule regular treats during our health kicks. If we're saving money, we may set a date each month to enjoy the odd luxury as a reward for our frugal living. Just as importantly, this research should teach us to look a little more kindly upon those unplanned indulgences that may accidentally take us a step away from our long-term goals. You may think that guilt and self-criticism will help you to learn from your mistakes, but recent psychological literature shows that they are often counterproductive. By increasing our stress levels and reducing our sense of self-efficacy, these emotions can impair our motivation. You would do much better to treat yourself with a little self-compassion relishing the pleasure before looking for practical means to get back on track. As the study of university alumni showed, balance is the key. We should aim to weigh up the needs of our present or future selves to ensure that we are serving the health and happiness of each. And contrary to the self-help Puritans, a little bit of hedonism is sometimes exactly what you need. That was The Pleasure Principle is a little bit of indulgence, the secret to success by David Robson, read by Dermot Daly. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, the footballer and presenter Alex Scott escaped a tough start to become an England legend and now one of the BBC's faces of football. She talks about her journey from an East End estate to boot room, and finally, the green room. Read by Evelyn Miller. This article includes descriptions of domestic abuse, so please take care while listening. As a child, Alex Scott gathered her Winnie the Pooh teddies on her bed. Am I going to be all right? She asked them. 
She loved her teddies, told them about her day, cuddled them for comfort. Eeyore had particular resonance. Something about the way the manufacturers had captured the character's woe in his downcast expression allowed her to look at him and feel the true depth of his sadness. She imagined the story behind it. It helped, somehow, as she tried to block out the sound of her father's tearing rage against her mother in the room next door. Because I grew up in an environment where we didn't show love, so I got that feeling from my teddies. I lift my hand to interject with a question, and Scott misunderstands this as an unwelcome gesture of sympathy. No, it's all right, she says with a flick of panic. I hate the idea of people ever feeling sorry for me, because that's the thing, I'm okay, I've done all right, I've come through things, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. So like that thought you just had of that's so cute, I'm like, no, I'm all right, I'm good today. Actually, I was thinking of the way children create worlds to self-soothe, but I am struck by how on guard she is against pity. Alex Scott does not want pity. On the face of it, she certainly has done all right. Aged eight, she was spotted by an Arsenal talent scout playing with the boys in the football cage, a fenced concrete pitch, next to her council block in Poplar, East London. She was the kid with the cautious smile, known round the estate as Ronnie Scott's little sister. It was 1992, the same year her father, Tony, left, taking everything, including the family television set. She seized the opportunity, took the bus to training several times a week and slogged her little guts out. Fast forward through 30 years, and it's a fairy tale. She captained Arsenal's women's team, played for England accruing 140 caps, took a degree in broadcast media and segued, seemingly with ease, into her dazzling career as a pundit. In 2017, she was awarded an MBE. In 2021, she became the first female presenter in the 46-year history of Football Focus, BBC One's weekly TV football look-ahead. Then, six months ago, Scott published an extraordinary memoir, How Not to Be Strong. It told the story of her traumatic childhood. She is still experiencing the turbulence that followed. Was it difficult for her mother, Carol, when the book came out? Oh my gosh. She shakes her head like I don't know the half of it. Because do you think we ever spoke about this as a family? Now all of a sudden I'm sharing this with the world and she has read stuff in my book she didn't know that I was seeing as a kid. What I went through, the feelings. So it was all so raw. The conversations have started, but... Yeah, it's in stages. Mum had to shut it all off. I think talking more is the next step, but... She pauses. What's that quote about taking the horse to the water? More on this later. I can hear her football focus voiceover in my head. We've got a lot to get through today. There's the forthcoming World Cup in Australia to discuss. The issue of investment in women's sports and the pay disparity for female footballers. She notices on the table at the photographic studio where we meet a picture of her friend and former Arsenal teammate Leah Williamson on the cover of The Guardian's Saturday magazine. It's devastating that Williamson can't play in the World Cup because of an ACL injury, she says. Striker Beth Mead has the same injury and has been trying to fight her way back in time. But look, this isn't a new thing. The ACL injury, a tear or sprain of the anterior cruciate ligament that attaches thigh and shin bones, is endemic in women's football. It's a shock to people who've not been involved in the women's game because they haven't seen how this has been a problem for years. Scott blames the lack of research and investment, insubstantial medical support, poor treatment facilities... Even the shape of the women's boots, which until now was designed for men. Nike are coming out with a boot that takes into account women's physiognomy, she says, but it's not just football. Women's sport needs to be treated more seriously. It's always going to be a fight for the next generation. It goes back, well, how many years? 
We used to have a hand-me-down kit. Baggy kit. There was no kit designed for women. Now, at least, it's slim fit, which helps them move faster. But we've got a long way to go. She speaks deliberately, with broadcaster's practice, holding my tape recorder to her mouth as if it's one of those yellow foam cubes on BBC Sport. She is mesmerising to look at, not least because she's still in photoshoot makeup. Skin glowing, eyeliner like calligraphy. The morning we meet, five European sports ministers, including the UK Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, Lucy Fraser, release a joint statement critical of the failure of national broadcasters and FIFA to reach agreement on televising the forthcoming World Cup. It's an extraordinary situation. For the men's game, television rights are sorted years in advance. Scott takes umbrage at my suggestion that fault lies with broadcasters. It's FIFA demanding more money from broadcasters, saying that they need to respect the game, when I know for a fact that they do. Scott expects to repeat the role she played in Women's Euro 2022, when she was one of the main presenters alongside Gabby Logan. I ask about football's gender pay gap, and if she thinks male players should take a pay cut so that the women's teams can be paid more, as male BBC broadcasters did for their female colleagues in 2018. You need females supporting females in getting to the top. But in all walks of life, you need male allies. I don't think men are going to say, well, we're going to take a pay cut. But they have a voice to be like, well, no, the women deserve this. And to shout about it. It's never about batting the women against the men. It's making sure everyone is in support. I ask this in part because to earn money at the start of her Arsenal career, she worked as a scrubber in the club laundry. The male players would toss in their filthy kit, shirts, shorts, socks, towels. She'd soak them in detergent and then scrub the hell out of them. Ever cheerful, she says. It gave me the best lunch every day. I loved the food at the training ground and I was able to save money. But she also admits that while watching the kit rotate in the huge washing drums, she'd think to herself, this isn't my life. I know that there's more for me and I'm going to get there. Before meeting Alex Scott, I watch clips of her scoring. There she is in her Arsenal red jersey, pippy long-stocking socks, carving down the wing from full-back, hooking the ball and, arm up for balance, pelting it in. Time and again, the camera tracks her before she slams in another. She scored the last-minute winning goal in the 2007 Champions League final against Umeå of Sweden. As well as the 140 times she played for England, she played five times for Team GB at the 2012 Olympics. She makes snap calculations that seem like mathematical impossibilities, acts with slicing precision, Then I watch her interviews. She retired from the game in an interview with Jeanette Kwachi at an award ceremony streamed live by Sky Sports on YouTube. Afterwards, she said you could hear a pin drop. The collective held breath of an audience wondering if she'd meant to say that. Even she wasn't sure she had. It was off the cuff, she has said since. Same principle, different sort of goal. As a BBC pundit, her prefrontal cortex struck again during the World Cup last November. She was feeling sad, she says, about the whole fiasco of the Qatar story, the treatment of migrant workers, the ban on homosexuality, FIFA's threat to yellow card players who wore the One Love armband in support of the LGBTQ plus community finished her off. While waiting to do a pitch-side hit, she was seized by an idea. Andy, she called to the FA comms man. No one's told me I can't wear an armband. A beat later, Scott was doing live commentary from England's opening match against Iran, armband secure on her biceps. Arguably, 
It was this same impulse that governed her decision to join the BBC presenter boycott in solidarity with Gary Lineker. You will recall, Lineker was pulled from Match of the Day for his support of asylum seekers back in March. When it was mooted that Scott would fill in for him, she posted a gif of Bernie Sanders saying, Nah, not me. The girl loves a gif. The following day, she tweeted that she would also skip that week's episode of Football Focus. I made a decision last night that even though I love my show, it doesn't feel right for me to go ahead today. She calls these lightning strike decisions going with my heart. I imagine she doesn't suffer esprit d'escalier, but she says she suffers a different sort of agony when she saw the explosion of criticism on social media after the One Love armband, for instance, she was horrified. I get emotional when I think I've hurt people. It's never meant. The idea that I disrespected a religion or went against a country was like, I couldn't believe that this little armband could create such divisions. My brain couldn't compute it. I needed to disappear, take some time away. I got consumed by the hatred but how many people were upset because I wore an armband. All I was thinking about was segregation, a whole community feeling left out, pushed to the side, not cared about. I was thinking, I care, I care. When she returned from self-imposed exile in Barbados, she realised that there was huge gratitude for her stand. People stopped me and were like, we saw what you did, that was incredible. Scott does not define her romantic orientation. She has dated both men and women, including her first love, fellow footballer Kelly Smith, for eight years. But this was not an explicit part of her thought process, she says. I didn't wake up and think, I need to do this because I am part of the community. It was about people feeling like they were not seen. I never want anyone to feel sad. Alex Scott's father is second-generation British Jamaican. Her mother of Northern Irish and Ashkenazi extraction. Her East End Jewish lineage was revealed to her while participating in BBC One's Who Do You Think You Are? in 2021. She learned that her great-grandfather fought the police and fascist black shirts in the 1936 Battle of Cable Street. She would pass the memorial every day en route to her nan's house in Wapping to watch Oprah. I thought, that's cool. But I didn't know my family had a whole connection to this mural. Not long after, she began writing. It was a way out of a dark space she'd been experiencing for six months. Her book opens, What I have learned over the past couple of years is that I'm very good at disguising when I feel low. I've often wondered why, why I feel the need to always be strong. I feel very guilty about my sadness. From the outside looking in, what the heck do I have to be sad about? I've managed to have a successful career in two fields I am passionate about. But what's worse than feeling guilty about being sad is putting on a happy face and pretending to yourself that this is a form of strength. From there the stories flood forth. She recounts how she grew up on the first floor of the Aberfeldy estate, iron grill over the front door. Views from the flat included the gasworks, a patch of wasteland and the gridlocked A12. The only play area was a tiny grass square behind the tower block. Her heroes were mostly musicians. Aaliyah, Tupac Shakur, although she loved Venus and Serena Williams. I think every black child saw a reflection of themselves in the Williams. They set an example and never relied on poor me narratives. Her East End community was tight and protective. No one, however, could shield her from her dad. Every evening, Tony gave Alex and Ronnie, who was two years older, a couple of pounds for the offie, where they'd pick up his strongbow and fosters, and every evening, Alex prayed they could make it through the night without an episode. She lay awake, tense and alert to the smallest sound. Was that mum going to the toilet? Or were those the all-too-familiar thumps? 
Could I hear her cries? Or the pleas of, Tony, please no, before another blow landed? Those noises, she writes, will never leave me. Of course, it wasn't just their mother who was susceptible to Tony's fists. He insisted on absolute control of his children. From his window, he monitored them playing, ensuring they obeyed his diktat never to set a foot off the grass. When their ball rolled into the street, they would get a passerby to throw it back. One day, no one was around. Ronnie glanced up to the window to check his father wasn't watching before sprinting to retrieve it. Next thing they heard was their father's voice. Ronnie, Alex, get up here now. That day, there was a special punishment beyond the usual beating. The children were told to gather every toy they owned and post them one by one into the rubbish chute. Scott relates her irrational hatred of BMWs because her father revered them. How, when he bought a flashy new camcorder, the latest thing, he hooked it up to use as surveillance on them. I'm laughing typing this because it's so stupidly cruel, she writes in the book. She tells of the time when, at a party to celebrate her sixth and Ronnie's eighth birthdays, her father told her mother to get him some lemonade. Carol made the mistake of saying she was in the middle of a conversation. That night, Tony beat her so badly that Scott was certain her mother was dead. The next morning, her face showed only part of what we knew had gone on. It was that battered even I was scared to make eye contact. While all this was going on, Scott's escape was the football cage. She would walk down to it thinking, there's more to this world. Thinking, I want to travel, I want to see bigger things. Once, on the concrete pitch with the ball in her control, she would imagine she was at Wembley. And Wembley was filled with 75,000 people cheering my name and it felt special and... I'm scoring a goal. She snorts. I went on to fulfil that. I don't think I even allow that to sink in sometimes. After 14 years, Carol finally asked Tony to leave. She gave us our freedom in that sense, Scott says. But the fact is she didn't give it to herself. Sometimes we think that when the partner leaves, then everything is okay. But what happens next is also important. Mum continued to live feeling trapped and scarred. So did we. Because we didn't learn to communicate, we couldn't move on. That's the next step. Tony Scott has acknowledged that his relationship with his family was volatile and he was strict with his children. Though, in an interview after Alex's book was published, he denied that he had been violent towards his family. She says the last time she heard from her father was in 2019, when she was on Strictly Come Dancing and he texted her for tickets. Secrecy as a survival strategy was a way of life. As a child, she would use poetry as a form of code in her diary. She had a crippling phobia of extreme weather and devised a plan in which she would save her mother and brother by running to the underpass should a tornado strike. Then it occurred to her that they might be hit by a tsunami. I always used to think that there wasn't enough time to get to the big building in Canary Wharf. I know I'm fast, but I was thinking about my mum. How do I get her there in time? I couldn't work it out. I ask if she knows where her father's terrifying rage came from, and she says that is the perennial question for those who have experienced domestic violence. Everyone, I suppose, is looking for that answer. I don't think they ever get it. I'm not at a stage where I'm hanging on to that anymore. I ask if her beloved Nan, Tony's mother who died in 2017, knew about the violence. Yes, I would say she did. The family knew, neighbours knew. But when you're that person who knows, what do you say? She's relieved that in today's world people check in with those they fear are in trouble. If I ask you, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm okay but I know there's something more, I'm going to ask you again. Whereas when I was growing up and people asked if you were okay, even if they knew something was wrong, they were not ready to hear. Therapy has been her redemption. I will never stop therapy. But she feels she was overly effusive about it initially. 
that her family weren't ready. I was like, this is great, I'm healing. Now I need to get my mum into therapy. My brother needs to start speaking. I was so positive, like, talking is great. But actually, not everyone is at the same stage. You can't force them. Meanwhile, Carol, age 64, who was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, has slowly begun to open up with stories Scott didn't know. I believe that my mum will take that next step into therapy soon and start healing further, but she's got to the place where she knows that Tony can't hurt her anymore. He doesn't have a hold over her anymore. Ronnie has his own way of showing love, she adds. Progress is in small but significant steps. For instance, us all sitting around the table eating our Sunday dinner together. Those family moments. Scott's single-parent upbringing has been cited alongside that of fellow England stars Marcus Rashford and Raheem Sterling. But she doesn't believe anything should be read into it. Some of the lionesses have come from stable homes. Both parents go into the game. What she shares with Rashford and Sterling is a desire to support family and community. When you think of the Brazilian players, Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, who made it after playing barefoot in a cage, the first thing they want to do is to be successful so they can help their community, help their family. She's proud of her East End roots. In television, she has experienced class-based discrimination. She remembers the detailed feedback from a work placement at Sky that said I would never make it as a presenter because my accent wasn't right. Despite her talents, the ignorance persisted. While covering the Olympics in Tokyo, she saw a tweet from ex-minister and former CBI boss Digby Jones that accused her of spoiling the coverage. Enough, the crossbench peer wrote. I can't stand it anymore. Alex Scott spoils a good presentational job on the BBC Olympics team with her very noticeable inability to pronounce her G's at the end of a word. Competitors are not taking part, Alex, in the fencing, rowing, boxing, kayaking, weightlifting and swimming. She replied, I'm from a working-class family in East London, Poplar, Tower Hamlets, and I am proud, proud of the young girl who overcame obstacles and proud of my accent. She has learnt to ignore the online abuse. Yes, even the death threats. I feel quite sad for people who feel that's what they need to do to get satisfaction. I'm like, okay, that makes you feel good. At least I've managed to give you that. She laughs. And you're not hurting me anymore. Interactions with her young female fans go some way to make up for it all. They ask her to sign their footballs or their notebooks. Some are too shy to speak. So it's up to me to be like, are you okay? Are you having a good day? Others are cheeky. They say, can I have this? Can I have that? Can we have your sock? I'm like, I need my sock. As a UNICEF ambassador, she has travelled to refugee camps in Iraq, to Papua New Guinea, to Rwanda, where she was asked to name a gorilla. The spirit of these kids is always overwhelming, she says. Scott has exceeded her ambitions and then some, including her appearance on Strictly Come Dancing, which was... Hard work, but that's been my mantra in life. She adds that it's a myth that athletes have an advantage. Our bodies are built for power. Actresses have come through drama school. They know how to move in a fluid, elegant way. Anything missing? Love? That's an easy answer. I'm at the stage where I'm ready to accept love. In all its forms. I've been so wounded I was scared to fall deeply in love. But that means I'm missing out. She worries people will be attracted to her TV persona, as opposed to her. That's why I've always had my guard up. I used to play this game. If someone asked my name, I'd say, I'm Louise. If they said, no, you're not, you're Alex, I'd be like, so why did you ask me? So far, dating has come to nothing. She dismisses the story about the member of One Direction with whom she had a brief fling, saying, I'll never tell. Does she use apps? Oh gosh, don't get me started. I have tried, I get so embarrassed that I don't talk to anyone, then delete them again. It's in-person connection that matters, she says. 
I've never been attracted only to the most beautiful person. You have to have more, substance, something that I gravitate towards. When asked by her book editor if she needed to explain her sexual orientation after the chapter about falling in love with Smith, she refused. I wrote a story about love. I don't feel like I ever have to say I'm in a certain box. Was I surprised that I fell in love with a woman? No, because it wasn't a woman, it was a person. Actually, I hope we get to a place where people will never have to explain who they are. They can just be. Yeah, underneath it all, I am a hopeless romantic. That was Alex Scott on Love, Lineker and the Women's World Cup. Women's sport needs to be treated more seriously. By Charlotte Edwards. Read by Evelyn Miller. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we have included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller and Dermot Daly and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.